Romans, Corinthians, and Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, where we read the following counsel from the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. So reads the living and the abiding word of God. Now this evening, as we have come to a Thanksgiving occasion, I felt increasingly that the passage which we have shared and read together would be a suitable meditation for us this evening, even though it is a passage that I have preached on in the congregation at least on one occasion previously in a series of expositions through the whole of the book of Philippians. You will remember that we are living in a time today when the thought of peace and the desire for peace is on the hearts and minds of many in our nation and throughout the world. The Middle East crisis currently has focused the thoughts of even unbelieving men upon the fragility of peace in the world today, peace between one nation and another. And it seems that almost every day that we live, we read of conflicts and war and dispeace in one quarter of the world or another. And one of the amazing things, I think, about modern society is just this, that in spite of our great technology that has landed men on the moon, that has enabled us to explore the furthest reaches of outer space, it would seem, in spite of all man's great accomplishments upon the earth and in the world of our own day, in this scientific and technological age in which we live, man still cannot live in peace with his fellow man, and man still, above all else, has not found the way to find peace with God. Now, you will have noticed in the reading that I shared with you from the fourth chapter of Philippians tonight that peace is one of the great ingredients of this passage. If you look at verse 7, the promise of the apostle to those Philippian Christians of many centuries ago was that the peace of God, which surpasses all human understanding, would garrison their hearts and their minds in Christ Jesus. And at the very end of the passage we read in verse 9, you notice again that he refers to the same great subject, and the God of peace, he says, will be with you. 
Now, of course, the peace that he is speaking about is something far greater than peace that men seek between their fellow men and themselves or between one nation and another nation. It is the peace that God provides from himself to those who are reconciled and made one with him. And it is interesting, but in both of these references, you will notice that there is a condition. In verse 7, the apostle does not simply say the peace of God will garrison your hearts and minds, but he says, and the peace of God will do so. And again in verse 9, it is not that he says the God of peace will be with you, but he says, and the God of peace will be with you. And sandwiched between these two statements are the conditions in which the people of God may know a peace, but the world in all its wisdom can never know. There are indeed four conditions, and this evening I want to remind you of those four conditions. Conditions that lead to that state of heart with the Christian where he may be in a continual disposition of thanksgiving to God and of living with a peace that surpasses all human understanding, living the Christian life with glory at its heart. Now surely this evening you desire to live a life like that in the troubled world in which we're living at the moment, in all the stresses within our families and our own personal lives. There is, in a sense, no more urgent quest, no more earnest, search on which we could be engaged than to find what is the very heart of the Christian life and so to be deeply thankful to God Almighty who has become our Savior in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the conditions you will notice between these verses are really four in number. But first of all, our relationships are to be centered upon Christ. And secondly, the circumstances of our lives are to be surrounded by prayer. And thirdly, our thinking is to be drilled in godly thinking and godly thoughts. And fourth, our whole life in its everyday conduct is to be subjected to the rule of God's word. I want to say a little to you this evening about these four conditions and then to conclude with a summary that will take us right into the heart of thanksgiving itself. Do you notice, first of all, then, that if we are ever to live a life that God intends us to live, if we are ever to know the peace of God, keeping our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, if we are ever to be truly thankful to the Lord in spite of all that life is throwing at us, then there is a law, first of all, for our relationships. And our relationships are to be centered and modeled upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you see this very clearly in verse 4, where the apostle says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And I will say it again, Rejoice! Let your gentleness or your moderation be evident to all, for the Lord is near. Verse 5. Now what then is the first qualification that we need in order to experience God's peace 
and the enlargement of our hearts under that gift of peace? Well, it is quite simply to center all our desires and all our relationships in this world upon the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul makes this so clear in verses 4 and 5. Now, in contrast to his emphasis there, we find so often that our thoughts and our desires flow to others than to the Lord Jesus Christ. In the world around us, the unbelieving world, you find that men and women are taken up, perhaps with their spouse, a husband or a wife, taken up with their family, their children, taken up with others in the close circle of friends that they have been enabled to achieve, taken up with business relationships, whatever it might be. And you find that in contrast to what should be at the center of the Christian life, at the heart of Christian living, there is something else upon which men focus their attention. And what Paul is telling the Christian is something very vital for his spiritual health and well-being. We are so to value the Lord Jesus Christ, so to long for his approval upon all that we do, that nothing else will be allowed to compete with our relationship to him. Now, this is an incredible thought. When you study it down, rejoice in the Lord, he says, and again I will say it, rejoice in him. You see, when you consider that it was the Apostle Paul that said such counsel, it is amazing in itself. This man who was being imprisoned for the gospel, this man who had suffered so much for the Lord Jesus, and even at this moment of writing, he was imprisoned in Rome and under house arrest, under the Roman Caesar Nero, this man who had lost his liberty, who, whom it might appear was about to lose his life, he is the one who counsels others to rejoice in the Lord always. And as you look at the amazing example of the apostle, and as you see instances of it, even all through this letter of the, to the Philippians, you come to one conclusion, that for the Apostle Paul, what buoyed up his spirit, what had kept him faithful to the Lord, what sustained him amid myriad trials and tribulations, was the very counsel that he gave to others. Here was a man supremely who had been enabled by God's Spirit to rejoice in the Lord Jesus always. And in the midst of whatever came to him and whatever life threw at him in the providence of God, he was able to rejoice more and more in the knowledge that Christ was his living Lord and Savior. Now when we take this and when we apply it to ourselves, we might be tempted to say this is a very hard saying indeed. How can I rejoice in Christ always, when it seems as though the hand of men is against us and I'm being persecuted for my faith, when even at the family and domestic level the plans that I've carefully made are suddenly thrust aside, when disease and death visit our homes and our threshold 
and we find a deep, wasting sorrow settling into our hearts and upon our spirits. How can we be expected to rejoice at times like these? But, beloved, I urge you this evening that the scripture is given to us for our instruction and our employment. And whenever there is a command given to the Christian, there is an enablement that he may fulfill that command. And in spite of every circumstance then in which I find myself, every disappointment that has thrust its way into my path, every sorrow that seems to crush the human spirit at times, I am enabled by God's grace and his indwelling spirit to say that I have a relationship with the Lord Jesus that nothing in this world can ever sever. And I may say to myself that he is indeed and will always be to me the cheapest of ten thousand. And so, as I fulfill that law for my relationships as the Apostle Paul did, I find that the secret of God's peace is dwelling with me and my heart begins to overflow with thankfulness to him. The law for my relationships. Let me ask you, is Christ central in your life this evening? Do you know him as your Lord and Savior? Are you rejoicing more and more in what you're discovering of him from the pages of God's word and the preaching of his word? Because it is the secret into the peace that passes all understanding. Now do you notice with me then, secondly, that there is not only a law for our relationships, but there is a law for our circumstances, and we find this in verses 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition or supplication, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God will garrison your hearts. And the apostle then is taking us on to a new ground of thinking, not relationships, but circumstances. Now let me say at once that in my experience as a Christian man and as a pastor, nothing is more destructive to inner peace of heart and mind than an anxiety. It is a wasting thing. It is the interest, as someone has said, that we incur on a debt we may never have to pay. We worry about things that haven't happened to us and may not happen in God's providence. And we become very disturbed inwardly and ill at ease because anxiety has taken over where faith and trust and prayer should reside in the heart of a Christian. Now, says the apostle, addressing such circumstances as these, in nothing be anxious, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. I remember, and I believe I've shared this incident with you on a previous occasion when I was a student studying for the ministry in the United Kingdom. There was an aged man, a father in Christ, a great valiant for truth in the gospel in those days of the 1960s, the early 1960s. 
a man called E.J. Poole Connor, who came and lectured those of us who were then students upon the books of Romans and Hebrews, lectures that I still remember very vividly to this day. And as he paced amongst us with his graying hair and his frail body, a man who was certainly in his eighties then if he were a year, I remember him telling us an incident that reflected upon this part of our text. He had been invited to preach in a distant place. And his host that particular evening as they ate the evening meal was sitting against a wall in the home on which a text had been placarded. And the words were quite simple, in everything by prayer, or simply everything by prayer, three words. And as the conversation went on, the aged pastor, Mr. Poole Connor, wondered where in Scripture that text was to be found, if indeed it were from Scripture, until eventually, thoroughly puzzled, he asked his host at the end of the meal, is that slogan on your wall from the Word of God, or is it from a Christian book, everything by prayer? And, of course, his host gently reminded him that it is taken from the fourth of Philippians and verse six. And he went on to relate that that to him was an abiding lesson, all those years of ministry that he was still to accomplish, for the incident had taken place many years before. Everything by prayer. Now, I suggest to you, my friends, this evening, what a wonderful slogan that is for living out our Christian lives. Is it true of your circumstances that you approach everything by prayer? Those frustrating seasons of your life, those seasons of spiritual coldness and difficulty where there is a struggle going on in your soul, those times of anxiety about family considerations, about business problems, about relationships, with others, some of the most difficult areas that we ever have to face in life, how we relate to other people are right as Christian men and women. Is your slogan in all of these and other circumstances, I must do everything, if I do it at all, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving? Let everything, says the apostle, not just some things, but everything be brought before him for his approval and direction and guidance and instruction. The apostle, you see, commands it. The scriptures require it. The promise is annexed to it. But only then will the peace of God garrison our hearts like a great invincible army of soldiers. It is the timeless remedy for everything. Our circumstances surrounded by prayer. How do you notice, thirdly, the condition that the apostle adds to the promise of God's peace? The qualification that comes out, thirdly, is not a law for our relationships nor for our circumstances, but for our minds in verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think, he says, about these things. Now let me say to you at once this evening that 
One of the problems as I see it in our society today and in the world in which we live, and a problem too among Christians, is that we are living, beloved, with very undisciplined minds. We know that this is a feature of the life of those who are non-Christians and unbelievers. The very thought of a disciplined mind to many of them, other than the exercise of that discipline in their own vocations and in their own work, the very thought of discipline is unacceptable. A man's free time is his own. A man's mind is his own. A man's life is his own. Leave me to live my life in my own way, says the unbelieving man and woman and teenager and young person. But the whole point of the apostles' instruction is that if we have become new creations in Christ Jesus, that former pattern of undiscipline and ill-discipline is something that we have left behind. And what the apostle is presenting to us surely is this, that for God's people there is a new a new position for their minds, a new discipline in which their minds are being engaged. And the mind of the Christian is to be engaged in godly thinking. It is to be well drilled in thinking God's thoughts after him. Now, how does he put it to us in this passage? Well, you remember that he reminds us that we are to take up our thinking with those things that are true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and of good report. Uh, these wonderful phrases from the King James Version, slightly different in the New International Version. And what he's really saying to us is that if we are Christian men and women, our minds must always give attention to the things that God approves of in order that we might be established and strengthened and settled in our Christian lives. The mind is the growth point of the Christian life. As we're so often reminded in the New Testament scriptures, it must be exercised and used to increase us in the knowledge of God. And the more we know, the more we grow as Christians. And so his challenge, you see, in this age in which we live is quite simply how much of our time and attention is given to things that ultimately are of no profit. Perhaps the time we spend before the television screen, and I would be the last one to deny that there is a lawful recreation and renewal of the mind by watching television. But how discriminating are we? How careful are we? But those things that pervert the mind and undermine right thinking and right living, we are willfully exposing ourselves to. What kind of books do we read? What kind of places do we go? What kind of conversation do we delight in? Of course there is a place for ordinary commonality conversation. Life could not function without it. But wherein lies the delight of the Christian's mind? Is that delight ultimately and always in the things that God approves of, the true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and of good report? And do we bring our minds always to that touchstone of the apostolic word, 
recognizing that we are being fitted here in this life for the great life of heaven itself when all our minds will be engaged for eternity in the contemplation of the almighty God. Alas and alack for so many the other predominates. And oh, beloved, this evening, if we are coming to God with thankful hearts to know his peace transforming our lives, we need that great apostolic discipline of a mind renewed by the Holy Spirit continually to think God's thoughts after him. Now, finally, there is a law for our behavior, and you find that in verse 9, stated quite simply in the scripture, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. If our relationships are to focus on Christ, if our circumstances are to be surrounded by prayer, if our minds are to be drilled in godly thinking, then our behavior above all else is also to have its rule. And that rule, you will notice, is the apostolic teaching of God's word. Now, for the Philippians, it was somewhat different because in their day, as you will readily recognize, a living apostle was among them. What privilege it must have been for those Christians in the Greek city of Philippi to know the apostle Paul as a person, to hear his voice, to listen to his teaching as he had visited their city to be under his direction, to receive this letter from him, and as they read it, to visualize the great apostle himself as though he was standing in their midst as he was wont to do for a season, delivering this great counsel to them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. To them was a personal, direct, fleshly knowledge of the apostle possible, but to us, we no longer have living apostles in the church. Does this counsel therefore fall on its face, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me do? Well, of course not. Because, my dear friends, we have, in the place of a living apostle, the continuing apostolate of Holy Scripture. And that is what directs the whole of our behavior. No longer the ministry of living men moving in and out amongst us, inspired directly by the Holy Spirit and taking that unique and unrepeatable office of the apostleship. But in their place, the continuing direction, the apostolate of Holy Scripture. And what the apostle is telling us surely is that whatever the word of God counsels us for our behavior, we are with willingness and readiness to put ourselves under its direction, to submit under the apostolic word of Scripture and be obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well then, as I close this evening, what a wonderful section of God's word this is in a world today that knows so little of true peace and cannot know true peace outside of Christ. What a remedy for the heart that is seeking the knowledge of that peace that surpasses, says the apostle, all human understanding, 
There is nothing like it, he says, in this world. And you and I, as believers, are privileged to know it. If we are living within these great apostolic guidelines of relationships modeled on the Lord Jesus, circumstances surrounded continually by prayer, our minds drilled in the discipline of godly thinking, and our behavior controlled by the living and abiding word of God itself. Oh, what cause of thanksgiving this is. How shall we be enabled, then, to come into the presence of God, as the apostle tells us, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, knowing that the peace of God is that blessed portion and heritage that God has given to his own people. May this be our experience as we have come to this thanksgiving service. And if there are those amongst us who know not the Lord Jesus, I say to you here this evening, this precious privilege of God's peace, this spirit that goes out to the Lord in the midst of every one of life's circumstances with prayer and thanksgiving, it can be yours as you come by faith and repentance to the Lord Jesus and recognize there is no other one whom you so greatly need to know in a personal way as your Lord and Savior and as you submit yourselves under the Holy Spirit to his direction and to the newness of that life that he will give you. The God of peace will then be with you also. May the Lord indeed enrich our hearts by these things, and to his name be glory and praise. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we are thankful for the reminder of these great privileges that belong to God's children and only to them, and we pray that with true thanksgiving we may continue this service of worship and rejoice in that Lord who has given us the ability to fulfill these qualifications and to rejoice in the Lord always. May it be so, for Jesus' sake. Amen.